Fish Bites podcast. We have a good one ahead today. I'm joined by Adam McInturf, the assistant director of 2080 Baseball. We're going to talk about a lot of Marlins prospects. We're going to start with the draft. Of course, you're going to talk about all of those prospects that you guys have been asking us about. Of course, baby Jose Devers, Jorge Guzman, Monty Harrison, Trevor Rogers. It goes on and on. It's going to be a really fun one today. So, Adam, thank you for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. So let's start with the draft. For the most part, the Marlins had a pretty interesting draft. No one really knew what direction they were going to go. There were some rumblings of a high school bat being on the Marlins' radar as the draft approached, and they ended up doing that in the first round in selecting Connor Scott out of Plant High School in Tampa, Florida. The Marlins selected three high school bats in their first three picks. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Connor Scott first and, and what you like about him? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think he is a guy that started getting first round hype as the spring went on that started to become more solidified. And people were kind of uh, not sure of what direction Miami was going to go. And in the 24 to 48 hours leading up to the draft, uh, it became clear that they were centered on Scott. Um, he's a guy I really like. I think there's there's a lot of upside with him. If you're looking for a very loose comparison, albeit an easy one. I think I would go um, with uh, another kid that went to Plant High School, Kyle Tucker, that went very early in the draft in 2015, I believe. Uh, I think Tucker, you know, he's gone on to be one of the better offensive uh, prospects in the game. I think he's already in double A. Yeah, he's already in double A and doing well. Um, I don't know if Scott is as advanced. Again, like Tucker had an older brother in the big leagues and in pro ball. Uh, might have a little bit more, had a little bit more power. But uh, from a frame perspective, Scott, like Tucker, is that lean 6'4 with a smooth, loose, left-handed swing. Uh, you can really see the physical projection. You can see the power projection. Something that's really impressive about Connor Scott is his speed. You know, he's 6'4, he's a tall kid, but it's the type of body that's going to maintain speed even if he fills out. And he's like a 65, 70 runner right now. I mean, he might slow a little bit, but this is going to be a tall guy that can run. And almost, you know, if you imagine Jake Marisnik, that's like a 6'4", 6'5", outfielder that's tall, but always maintained his speed. And I think for the left-hand side, when you consider the plus arm, um, there's a lot of tools to work with, and it's an exciting player with high upside for the Marlins. And with these high school guys, you know, it, it seems to be like they have, some of them have a higher ceiling, but do you think there's a little bit more risk assumed with Connor? A guy like Connor Scott, like you said, they're expecting him to fill out. You're expecting him to do these sorts of things, but, you know, it doesn't always happen. Do you think there's a little bit more risk assumed when you're taking a guy like Connor Scott? Yeah, I, I think um, the way that I look at that is, especially with the new draft rules since two, uh, 2012, I'm guessing that our listeners are relatively familiar with those, the bonus slot, uh, hard bonus slots that were implemented then. I think you have to kind of look at a team's draft through a commodity lens. So as opposed to just saying like one player represents the entire team's class, I think you need to generally look at the class in totality. But you're not wrong that when you step back and look at this class in totality, I'm not saying I don't like it at all, actually, but uh, three high school guys in Scott, Osiris Johnson, and Will Banfield, plus Tristan Pompey, who was actually a fairly like risk-reward more so than most college guys uh, himself. Yeah, there's definitely rest here with this class. Um, they took upside guys with projection, but you're absolutely right to mention that uh, with projectable guys comes uh, you know, kind of an assumption that they will continue to project, and sometimes that doesn't happen. So I think, though, with all that said, I think, don't think I don't think of the Marlins amateur scouting group as a group that shies away from taking risk. I don't think they shy away from taking young players. I don't think they mind to wait on guys. Uh, for instance, I think this is off the top of my head, like the fourth or fifth straight year that the team has used their first pick on a high schooler. And as recently as 2016, all of the three uh, first three selections were also from high school. So this is kind of a draft playbook that the Marlins have done before. And, you know, hopefully, even though all of these guys might take some time to get to Miami, they'll be ready to go by the time that this intriguing team's ready to compete down the road. And there's so many questions I want to go to from there, and I'll probably save them for after. But 
historically the Marlins haven't had a lot of success, at least in the historically maybe, but in the last few years, they've struggled a little bit with those high school guys. Tyler Kolick, of course, a name that comes to mind. But even Braxton Garrett, even though it's too early to tell, he had to have Tommy John surgery. And then you have Trevor Rogers, mm-hmm. who's just now pitching after taking a, a little bit of time off and struggling, and we'll get into him a little bit later. But kind of the last thing we'll talk about with these high school guys is, do you think there's more of a risk with, with arm health? And since they don't have that structured college throwing program and weight program, they're kind of being thrown into pro ball. From, from, what you're, from your experience, you know, what, what do you think, do you think that has any effect on the ability for these guys to stay healthy once they get to pro ball? So are, are you asking uh, if they are riskier than high school pitchers or less risky because they're position so, players or just simply by or, – or is it the nature of uh, professional baseball when you're a teenager that makes it more difficult versus a college program? I would say like, – I guess I'm more focused on with arms specifically. Uh, you know, when you're going straight from high school, there's not as much structure to your throwing program if you're a pitcher – uh, you don't really have that weight program that you have in college and you're kind of thrown into pro ball. Do you think there's more of a risk as we've seen with the Marlins having Tyler Kolick and all these guys have Tommy John surgery right away? Oh, I, I see. I, I think it's, look, there's no doubt that it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't read great that they drafted Kolick, he went down with TJ. And they drafted Braxton Jarrett, he went down with TJ. And... uh uh, geez, Rogers. I was about to call him from New Mexico, but Ro- Rogers. Uh, he, you know, had to build up arm strength, and he wasn't really fully ready to go after signing. That doesn't look great, but I think that there are two things in play here. Like maybe there's something about the organization, maybe, but I'm not even really willing to say that. I think there could kind of be some rotten luck there. And a quick caveat too: I think that a lot of things, as you well know, and as I'm sure listeners know are changing with this organization. And I think um, by bringing in some guys that had a lot of success in New York, starting with Gary Denbo, but clearly there's been a really impressive roster of front office scouting and player development talent added to this organization over the last year or so. Uh, I think that, and this is just something even that I've noticed from scouting some of their affiliates, the energy surrounding the player development department this year is really different. And I think that it mimics a lot more of what was going on in New York and there's a focus on training and I think kind of a buy-in from the players that I hadn't seen in years past on the farm. So I think that's one thing that's good. And I think number two, I mean, I'm biased because as a former pitcher, I don't know, I sometimes wonder, and this is a different topic altogether. I sometimes wonder if going to college, you know, you, you mentioned, you're absolutely right that it's a transition moving from being a high school pitcher to college or professional baseball. Um, you have a lot of instruction and regimentation on either side, be it at the D1 level or professionally. These kids are on pretty, uh, like I said, just pretty preset programs a lot of the time. I am a little biased and I lean towards going pro sometimes because I think that there are occasionally some uh, incentives for making guys being able to compete quickly at the college level that might not ultimately lend themselves well to the pitcher's longest term development. But in general, um, no, I I guess to answer your question, I think it's a good one. uh, Sorry, we got a little abstract here, but I think it's a good one. In general, no, I personally don't believe there's anything more dangerous uh, about going professional out of high school for a high school pitcher than going to college. I, I think that actually sometimes If you go as a young pitcher, if you are ready for professional baseball from a maturity standpoint, which sometimes that's why kids should go to college, but let's presume that uh, an 18-year-old is ready to be a professional. Sometimes I think that because the emphasis in pro ball is on being your best player in three years, four years, five years, and that big picture is kept in mind, that actually I think sometimes the programs and the development that kids are on professionally uh, might be better in the long term. So that's just uh, my, my opinion there. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I kind of warned you before you came on that I wasn't going to be able to help myself and kind of <laughs> stray from our uh, prospect talk and end up asking you some crazy questions because it always really fascinates me, especially with how much the Marlins have had a little bit of bad luck and struggled, you know, in the last five or so years that there's always so many questions. And that's why I love having 
somebody like you on, and, and I know the fans are going to love it as well. But before we go off too long on a tangent, I want to touch on two, the last two guys uh, from this draft, and then we'll get into the prospects. Of course, you have Os- Osiris Jackson and Will Banfield. Banfield has been said to be arguably the best defensive catcher in the draft. We saw him go three for three, throwing runners out in his debut. And Johnson is very raw, very young. I don't even think he's 18 years old yet. Uh, but, yeah, no, he's really young. He's, he was super young for the class. But another guy with a huge ceiling. Real quick, just give me a little bit of info on those guys and what you like about them and, and what, what, what you think the Marlins were looking at when they decided to pick them. Yeah, uh, I think with Johnson, uh, you're looking at a guy that um, I think, you know, like like we mentioned, they're never afraid to go with the high school athlete. They're not really concerned about who's going to go out and be the most pro-ready player tomorrow. The Marlins seem to show a propensity for just taking their risks on ceiling guys, which I understand. I, I, I'm actually inclined to be more ceiling-oriented in the draft than floor-oriented myself as well. Um, I think Johnson definitely fits that profile, though. I think this is a guy that's going to be, you know, a few years away for sure, just as he probably finds a full-time defensive position at the pro game, because I'm not really sure that it's a given that he stays at short. I don't know what your opinion is there. I don't see him as a sure-fire shortstop. I think there are some areas in his approach and his swing consistency that he's going to have to shore up, and that can take some time as he makes that adjustment with the coaches and player development staff. But he's got a lot to work with. It's a very athletic, physical, right-handed, uh, right-handed profile with uh, raw power and hand speed that you really can't teach and good tools to hit. So there's something to work with here. It just might be uh, a process to kind of tone it down, get him acclimated to pro ball, and have him start finding a position. Um, as far as Banfield goes, I think it's, it's interesting. He's kind of a different profile than Johnson. I think that he's a little bit more polished. Um, and I think that you know what you're getting. Like, he has a little bit more floor, I guess, because, like you said, he's such an advanced defender, and that's at least something you can bank on with him. Like, there is a lot of offensive attrition with catchers. We know that, uh, but his glove is the calling card. His glove isn't something that's going to change or be taken away, and even if the bat goes backwards a little bit, or, you know, I think there were some questions about the bat that might have knocked him out of the first 40 or so picks, uh, which is where a lot of people thought he was going to go going into spring. But he's still got a carry tool. He's got something to fall back on. And I think he's a good bet to stay at catcher. So I think that uh, Banfield might move a little bit more quickly, but they're both you know guys that present upside in their own ways. And I'm excited about the Marlins actually picking a shortstop because it's been a while, whether he stays there or not, but a middle infielder, it's been a while since there's been someone in the Marlins system that you could be excited about up the middle and – hopefully plan for the future because they haven't really seemed to have a plan for that middle infield. And hopefully, I mean, he's young, he's athletic. I think he has a shot to stay short, but I I definitely could see him moving to, I'm not sure how sure handed he is, but speaking of shortstops, we're going to move over to Jose Devers who you've seen play and uh, he's young, of course, only 18 years old, came over in that Yankees trade with John Carlos Stanton. A lot was made that he might not, you know, obviously not be as good as his brother, Rafael, who plays for the Red Sox. And maybe he doesn't have as much power. He's only six foot 155, and that might be generous. But then again, he's only 18 years old. He started off really hot. He's still hitting all right, but he really is more of a singles guy, only with an OPS of only about 681. What have you seen from Devers? And do you think he's a guy that can actually climb the ranks because there have been some rumblings about him getting called up to high A. Yeah, no, this is a good, I think just talking about the state of the Marlins farm at the shortstop position is good. Obviously we just touched on Osiris Johnson uh, quickly on Johnson. I think a good comparison for listeners, uh, a guy like him that's had some success is James Nelson. I think that he's a similar profile. I think Nelson was similarly a toolsy shortstop that, might have lacked some offensive consistency and was looking for a position in the pro game. And we've seen him take some steps in the last year or two. So I think uh, they'd be thrilled if he could follow that development path. Um, But moving forward, moving on to Devers, like you said, yeah, I've seen Devers play a lot. I've seen him play in two full series this year. I saw him the South Atlantic League All-Star game. Um, You know, I I can see the appeal. 
and it's more than just the bloodlines. I mean, like you said, he is more of a uh, really all a contact and singles oriented hitter right now. The glove is probably the calling card for me for him. I think he's got real nice actions at shortstop. I think maybe unlike a guy like Johnson or Nelson who may have a little bit more bat, a little bit more power in the bat, but aren't as much true shortstops. I think Devers uh, does have the actions in lateral range to stay there. And I think the difference for him, whether he's really like an average or solid defender at short versus an overall uh, above average defender is probably going to come down to his arm strength, which is probably like right on the fringes of average right now. But you said he's 18. There's a lot of room to grow into his body. He can get stronger. So I, I expect him to stay at short. Um, you know, I, I don't really know if he's ready and if it's even necessary for him to move up to Jupiter in the Florida State League, like you said, just because he's so young. I think the Florida State League's a really tough lead for hitters anyway because the parks are huge and the air is really thick, and it's usually the first time guys are facing older pitching. And he's not really a power guy as it is. I, I, I can see him uh, taking some lumps there if he were to be moved up in the Florida State League at age 18. I think he'd probably be the youngest player in the league if he were to move up. So he's, he's a guy, ultimately, uh, to wrap it up on Devers. I think the best-case scenario ceiling, if you squint hard enough, is kind of a you know bottom third of the order hitting shortstop who plays every day because of his defense and can get you on base with singles, doubles, and contribute with speed. Um, you know, I do think there's going to need to be more strength uh, in the bat for him to reach that ceiling to be an everyday guy as opposed to maybe more of a utility infielder. But um, you know, good athlete, good speed, can stick it short, and he puts the bat on the ball. So I I see the appeal there. Well, my one thing with Devers is I feel like the future of the shortstop position generally is some guys with a little bit more pop in their bat as you see Corey Seager, you got Carlos Correa, you got Francisco Lindor, this kind of new wave of middle infielders, but specifically shortstops that are going to hit you 20 plus home runs a year as well. And I feel like Devers fits more of that older shortstop mold. And I think that's what the Marlins were kind of going with a little more with, yeah. with with Osiris Johnson, hoping maybe if he can stick at shortstop, he will be that 15 to 20 home run guy if he really fills out and, and figures it out. Obviously, that's a, you know, a, lot of, a long ways down the road. But I'm not a huge fan of that defensive-only Adani Echeverria type of shortstop profile because in the past, it just doesn't seem to really work. Yeah, no, I mean, you you want guys to hit for power. I think the way the game is going, you know, we're moving towards an era where on-base percentage and power uh, is looked at, I think, a little bit more importantly than the frequency with which players get hits, regardless of how many bases they get when they do get hits, which is essentially what batting average is. Um, but by the same token, uh, I think that you look at the team's across the league that are entirely three true outcomes type teams. And those teams have a tendency, in my opinion, to have a difficult time scoring runs when it counts or scoring runs either down the stretch or in the postseason because situational hitting and putting the ball in play becomes so important. And I think there are people that feel as though that we're moving a little bit back, actually, to that throwback era where uh, guys that put the bat on the ball are going to be prioritized more moving forward simply because they're starting to be the rare ones, not the other way around, not the high strikeout, high walk type guys. So that's probably what you're hoping for with Devers, but I, I agree. I think we're looking at a guy who, if he's an everyday player, he's there because of his love, and he's going to probably be a table setter more than he's ever going to be a big uh, big bopper. Absolutely. And we go into the other guy who came over from the Yankees in that Stanton trade, and that's Jorge Guzman, the flamethrower. He can sit high 90s, even at 100. And he's looked pretty good so far in high A ball. We have a 277 ERA, 53 strikeouts, and 55 and a third innings. The 32 walks are a little bit worrisome, but he is young as well. What have you seen from Guzman, and, and, and what do you like about him? There's there's a lot to like here. I mean, he's probably the hardest-throwing starting pitcher in the minors. If he's not the hardest-throwing starter, he's one of them. Um, he'll hold 96 and above for like eight innings, and he won't dip below 96. He's just got really unique uh, velocity and arm strength. But more than that, I mean, he's a physical guy. 
Uh, I don't think durability is much of an issue. Even though there's moderate effort in his delivery, I think he can hold up with the way that he throws and how he does it. Um, it's two pitches that in a vacuum are definite out pitches, definite swing miss pitches. Uh, I think that's why you hear this guy talked about uh, as a, you know, a fallback option for him is high leverage situations because if you were to air it out in the bullpen, you'd be looking at a 100-mile-an-hour fastball with a hammer curveball. Um, and, you know, I think that's the appeal. I think some of the negatives with him are like a lot of younger hard throw. Well, I guess he's not that. He's 22, I think. But like a lot of younger power arm guys, uh, the control can come and go. I don't really know if within the zone with his fastball, if there's that much true fastball command at this point, if that made sense. But I, I don't know either if he's ever going to need to be the most pinpoint guy within the zone because of the velocity that he has on his fastball. Um, I think if he wants to remain a starter, though, there's just some small things like uh, learning a little bit more maybe to pitch to contact when he needs to to keep his pitch count down to work later in games. Uh, maybe developing a little bit more separation velocity-wise from his fastball for his changeup. And the change is a good pitch for him, but he overthrows it a little bit in the upper 80s. It can almost be like a two-seam fastball. Probably would be better if he could get a little bit more uh, velocity off of that for more split. Um, so, you know, I think you kind of look at the sum of the parts, and it's a guy that has unique stuff. He has two pitches and maybe a third if he can really develop the changeup that could be swing-miss pitches. Uh, the fastball velocity, I think, gives him some margin for error in terms of his pitchability and control. But those are still areas where he needs to sharpen up to be in the rotation. I mean, I think if it all clicks and if you squint hard enough, yeah, the best-case scenario is a guy that can pitch number two, number three in your rotation um, because he just has that good stuff. I mean, even if he walks some guys, I think he'll always strike out enough to compensate for it. But if the controller pitchability isn't enough, like I said, uh, you can pretty easily see the fallback in a late innings guy right now. So it's, it's an exciting arm with power stuff. And if he does start, that means his control and pitchability is good enough to remain in the rotation. And if that's the case, this stuff is really going to play. So he's, he's a guy that, uh, Marlins fans should be excited about even if he is a full year off, not a little bit more. Well, that's the one thing that's great about Guzman is even if it doesn't work out as a starter, which of course the Marlins are really hoping he works out as a starter, there's still that chance that he can be a lights out arm in the pen. So it, it almost raises his floor to at least being a major league arm at some point in his career. And that kind of takes a little bit of pressure off of the Marlins with potentially moving some of those bullpen arms, knowing that there's kind of a contingency plan or two in the minor leagues. And it's interesting you brought up that change-up point because you look at a guy like Jose Urania, who you see him sit in the upper 90s, and you're like, why is he not striking out more batters? And I think the real issue is you can throw 100 miles an hour in the major leagues and, and not strike very many guys out because they can catch up to that. It's all about changing the speeds. And exactly. Urania hasn't done a good job of that. And Exactly. And, and Alcantara... So far, Sandy Alcantara, I mean, he's he's still adjusting as well, but he hasn't struck out as many guys as you, you think he should. And it's kind of the same thing as well, is you don't have that change of speeds. And I was kind of curious what your opinion was on that, because that seems to be my takeaway, is that you can sit in the triple digits, but if you're not mixing it up, these guys will tee off. No, I totally agree. And I think that um you were talking about the Marlins have a similar – type of pitching prospect here with a Urania, uh, Jorge Guzman, and a Sandy Alcantara. All three of these guys are, you know, top-of-the-scale velocity guys with big stuff, and it's swing-miss stuff. And you're right, you look at the stats, and you're wondering, like, why aren't these guys striking out, uh, you know, a batter in inning or more? And I think two things are true. For one, if you look at their game logs, there are instances where we've seen the strikeout capacity, like you see the ability to miss bats. But, yeah, I, I think over uh, the course of a season, you really hit the nail on the head, especially against uh, major league competition. But even high minors competition, like what Sandy Alcantara faced most of this year before his call-up last week, um, you know, especially if you're a starter and the lineup turns over and it's, you know, the second or third time you face the opposition, if you're really coming at guys just one way, they're going to be able to figure it out. And even if you are having success throwing a high velo fastball, uh, even if you're not missing bats, like if guys just hit the ball on the ground a lot, um, 
you know, it's really tough to induce strikeouts and swings and misses pitching at one speed. So I don't really have much to add. So I think you said it pretty well. I think uh, in the case of Guzman, Alcantara, and Urania, all of these guys, they all have the fallback uh, of being potentially impactful late innings arms because they all have that type of stuff. And that makes their ceiling really high in the rotation too because if you can be a starting pitcher that has two pitches that are like legitimate sevens, like if you can actually start and have pitchability with two pitches that are that good, we're talking about, you know, one of the better starting pitchers in baseball right there alone. Um, but if these guys don't learn to change speeds a little bit more and learn, you know, if they don't learn how to throttle it back a little bit, yeah, I think that these are guys uh, whose stuff might always be a little bit better than the stat line of the rotation. I don't want to say that's going to be where they're going, though, but uh, it's just, you know, I think they're all similar in that they all kind of need to make that adjustment uh, and add a little bit more pitchability. And I think that was part of the reason why you saw a little bit of a delay with Sandy Alcantara. Um, Mike Hill kept saying he wanted to see him develop a few things. Derek Jeter also said it as well. They wanted to see him work on a couple of things. Um, I'm guessing that was probably the off-speed pitch. And now that we're talking about strikeouts, we'll do it on the flip side with hitters. Monty Harrison is the Marlins' top prospect. And, you know, he's flashed a lot of why you see he's, you know, he's kind of showed why he is the top prospect. Oh, he's yeah. flashed it here and yeah. there. But then you look at the strikeouts, 126 strikeouts and 292 at-bats. I mean, I don't have the percentage, the K percentage. I know that's pretty close to half of the time that he's striking out. Yeah, no. Is that alarming to you? Uh, yeah, it's uh, and I, I have the stats up in front of me, so now off the top of my head, I can't take credit totally for that. But thirty-eight percent strikeout rate, uh, you know, going yes. into July. Yeah, and and you know, yes, is is that alarming? Yeah, ab- absolutely, it is. Does that mean that with a guy like Monty, with as toolsy as he is, and actually with some of the makeup that he's shown and ability to make some adjustments that he's shown? Does that mean that uh, it's time to throw in the towel? Like, absolutely not. You know, you, you as, as you said, uh, he's the team's best prospect. I'm inclined to agree with you that he's still the team's best prospect because I think that he's probably the best blend of proximity because he's already in double A, uh, but also ceiling. I've seen Monty play uh, plenty in the Brewer system. Actually, I haven't seen him uh, this season uh, in the Southern League, but we have someone down there right now. Uh, you know, I think everyone's familiar with him that's listening to this podcast, so I won't go into detail on the tools too much, but I mean, it's about as toolsy a profile as you're going to get. He's frankly, there's no other way to say it. He's just a freak. Like people really aren't this big and fast and strong. Um, you know, I think we know his three sport, uh, history, you know, he's football recruit, basketball player. Um, and he brings those tools to the baseball field. I think. One thing that's important to note about him, it's, it's, I, I, I just two things. One, this is his first, uh, dose of double A, and he wouldn't be, uh, the first guy to struggle against older pitching and have some parts of his approach exposed pretty badly in his first half season of double A. I think it's important to look at the second half numbers with him. And two, I mean, this is a guy that's shown that he can adjust to a level before. Now, it, it, it was in the Brewer system, but he really struggled at the plate um, with when he went his first full pro season in 2015, when he went to the Midwest League, he really, really struggled. And he came back and he adjusted to that level and he was an all-star in the same league the very next year uh, before the trade. So um he's a guy that's adjusted the levels before and this type of athlete uh can make adjustments more quickly and later into their 20s than many types of players i think that's important to remember too but yeah the reality is if this is a guy that winds up being a fourth outfielder at the end of the day it would only be because he doesn't make enough contact and he wound up kind of going that direction where despite all the tools he just didn't get on base enough now i think he can be a lot more than that but I also think that Harrison, he's, you know, I mean, he has a chance to be an all-star. These types of tools are all-star tools, but there's no doubt that he's going to have to refine his approach. Uh, I think we're always going to be looking at a lower average hitter-ish. Like, I, I think he, it's the highest you could maybe go on his hit tool and on-base ability is a 45 or a 50, but uh, he's going to bring plus power for the position, 
stay in center field and be very impactful defense uh, defensively. So there's high upside there, even if we're looking at a guy that always swings and misses a little bit, uh, he'll just need to cut down on it moving forward. And with I mean, without going too far into approach, the one thing I've kind of seen with, with Monty Harrison is something similar I've seen with Lewis Brinson is I think their swings are just a little bit long and they get caught cheating a little bit. And then once that off speed comes, they kind of look a little foolish because, I mean, MLB or professional pitchers, I mean, Monty Harrison has only faced the double A, but Lewis Brinson especially too has just been really exposed by trying to catch up to that fastball. And, and do you think that it's, just their approach and the swings getting a little too long or is it just adjusting to the higher velocity and more pitchability from these guys that they're facing? Yeah, I'd say that uh, I'm being a little nitpicky here, but I don't think that uh, with Monty or with Lewis Brinson, I'm glad you mentioned Brinson because they're pretty similar. I mean, I think Monty's built, he's a little more muscular, but you know, it's the same power speed center field profile that comes with hit tool questions and strikeouts. So, um, I don't think it's fastballs that they struggle with. I think that, frankly, uh, bat speed and ability to impact the baseball is never going to be the issue with Harrison or with Brinson. These guys can catch up to any fastball. The problem is uh, taking movement out of their swings and keeping their heads quiet and still and probably just learning how they're going to get pitched to. It's not that they're late on fastballs. It's that I don't think that they really recognize off-speed stuff as well right now. But certainly in Harrison's case, I, 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 I haven't seen Brinson play much since uh, he was in the big leagues, but uh, I remember Brinson being like this when I saw him for years in the Rangers system. Um, I, I think more it's, it's the pitchability, like you said, that the more advanced pitchers in AA, I think when you make that jump from A ball to AA, the first thing that's different, yeah, it's velocity-ish, but really it's like guys throw off-speed pitches for strikes. That is the biggest difference and it immediately sticks out. Guys can throw off-speed pitches for strikes. Guys can be 25 or 26 years old. Some of them have played in the big leagues before, and they don't have to throw you a fastball for strike one. And I think, uh, you know, there's been plenty of hitters that have been all over top prospect lists. And when they face guys that started being able to slow it down and pitch backwards and hit different spots of the zone at different speeds, they never figured it out. You know, you hope that a guy like, Monty Harrison, who I think is a high makeup, you know, high ath uh, high athleticism individual, he can make that adjustment. But uh, I think in both cases, him and Brinson, it's more a matter of adjusting to the change of speeds and recognizing when uh, when you're going to see non fastballs and what that looks like coming out of a pitcher's hand. So uh, I'm sure that these guys have had a hitting coach in their ear saying that and they're putting a lot of time in the video room trying to get better, and hopefully they can. And both of them are young, and they have a, a lot of time to figure it out. Lewis Brinson seems like the Marlins are just going to stick with him no matter how much he struggles and let him get his ABs, which I think, I think is a good thing, year, especially when you yeah. aren't really planning. Absolutely, because you you aren't really playing for anything as unfortunate as that is to say, other than the development of your players. So why not let him stick out there and figure it out? Uh, but another guy that's finally pitching, who we waited for for a while, Trevor Rogers, Marlins' first-round pick last year, Another top prospect that's struggling, 0-3 with an 8.42 ERA and seven starts. He has 28 Ks in, in 25 and two-thirds innings, which is you know, pretty solid from a left-handed pitcher, but the 351 opponent average and 39 hits in 25 innings is a little scary. I know he's just starting. It's his first little taste of you know, professional baseball, but what have you seen from Rodgers, and, and what, what's the reason why he's struggling? Is it just getting exposed to professional hitting or is he uh is he not really finding that off speed so far uh you know i i, I think it's a couple things he's he's had a couple again i i think when a guy this young has only made a handful of starts it's important to look at the game log and each individual start because there really hasn't been he's only pitched 25 innings there it's not enough innings to let like one or two really bad outings affect you like if, if if you were to take out he he got hit around pretty bad um his last start of June and he had another one where he got knocked around pretty badly against Hagerstown in May if you take those out he's actually had some pretty good starts um you know but yeah I I I think with him this was a kid that for various reasons like you touched on earlier 
despite being a little bit older for his high school class, he was not really ready to hit the ground running once he signed. And he wasn't, I guess, ready to, they didn't feel for one reason or another, they could send him to a full season affiliate uh, to break camp this year. So in late May, uh, he was sent to Low A Greensboro to just get started. For me, I've seen him twice. Um, I see what the appeal is. I mean, I, I think my report came out on him a couple days ago. I think it's on our website at 2080. Um, you know, it's a big, lean, very loose, athletic uh, kid with effortless velocity. You know, he's six foot five, six foot six on the left hand side, touching 95. Um, I've actually was kind of impressed with the development of his changeup. He's been using that like a more mature pitcher. I've seen him use it pretty well across two starts to righties and get some action and separation on it. The slider, it's like kind of, uh, I've seen kind of like a flat, low 80s kind of one-plane slider right now. He's throwing it more to lefties than righties. I think that'll be something that he'll need to both develop and probably get a little bit more comfortable throwing to hitters uh, from both sides of the plate, even if he always uses it to lefties a little bit more. But ultimately with him, and I'm sorry to go on and on, I think it's just a matter of pro readiness. Like, there are instances where I think his tempo with runners on base, for instance, he can work really slow. Or I've noticed that with runners on base, when a guy is, you know, dancing over there at first base a little bit, I've seen him really have a difficult time bearing down and making the next pitch. I mean, I've seen good ingredients with him such that uh, – I would encourage people to overlook the stat line right now because this is a kid that is actually making his uh, first handful of professional appearances because he didn't appear in a Gulf Coast League game and didn't play anywhere before coming up from extended this year. So there's stuff to work with. Um, you know, I, I think if, you, again, if you squint hard enough, it's extreme risk, but you can see that, you know, number three or four left-handed starter but a lot of things will need to continue to develop. Um, it's kind of all projection with Rogers right now, but at the very least, uh, he's got the body athleticism and flashes of stuff that maybe he is that guy that projects, but he's still, I, I, I would say, three or four years out himself, and I, I think there's a lot of outcomes that could happen with this one. And that's another one of those, going back to our early conversation about volatile high school picks that's probably one that they the marlins knew what they were getting into um but they have faith in their scouting department and uh even though that was pre-gary denbo so i'm not sure how they feel about rogers now but uh he definitely has a high ceiling it was pre-denbo but it wasn't pre-stan meek i mean stan is as far as i know presided over that draft room for a good amount of time and like we were talking about there's never uh Never a shyness about going for the upside and going for the high school guy. And you know, the times that works, you look great. And with that strategy, sometimes I'm not saying that Rogers is going to be a miss, but you got to know sometimes you're going to miss. That's just the nature of it. I watch Rogers and all that I say is I see why I, I, I see it. I see the tools. I see what they like. We'll see how much this kid puts it together. I think repeating his delivery and same thing, just repeating his delivery and getting ahead of hitters. It sounds simple. But that's such a huge part of being a starting pitcher at the professional level. Um, you know, I, I think just getting acclimated to a pro schedule and some small things, I think we can see Rogers turn it on once he starts uh, hitting the mark in those regards. And one of the last guys I wanted to talk about, um, probably should have brought him up when we were talking about shortstops, is, is Joe Dunnand. He played at NC State, uh, so he's a little more developed, 22 years old. He's Alex Rodriguez's nephew, of course, and... Shows a lot of power, kind of that profile of that power shortstop. But he's big. I'm not sure how, how sure-handed he is. I don't know if he could stay at shortstop. And that was kind of the question I was going to ask you is, do you think he has the actions to say, stay at shortstop? And do you think that he can uh, continue to make consistent contact? He's struggled a little bit so far uh, getting called up to double A, but as we've talked about, it's kind of an adjustment as it is. But He's a little bit of a swing and miss guy as well. Do you think he has that ability to hit, uh, you know, advanced pitching? And can he stay at shortstop? Kind of a two-part question there. Yeah, I'll say um, I think it's this is a good segue because, again, uh, he's an example of a guy that was having a lot of success in A-ball, made that jump to double-A. And even as, like you said, an older, uh, maybe a little bit more polished guy, given the family history, bloodlines, and he came out of college, 
even those types of guys will struggle. You know, same as a high ceiling athlete that came out of high school, like Monty Harrison. Um, pitchers are just a lot better. But, you know, to me, no, I, I, this isn't a knock on him. Uh, I've never really seen him as a shortstop. I mean, I saw him in high school, and I thought he would outgrow the position by the time he got drafted out of college. I saw him his draft year in college, and I thought he would move to third upon being drafted. I saw him in pro ball, and I thought he would move to third upon getting to double A. I guess he hasn't moved to third. So, um, you know, you hope he can stay. Uh, I don't, you know, not knocking him. No, I don't really see, though, uh, that body type and the first step quickness and range staying at short. That doesn't mean he's a bad defender. It's just that the guys that play a good shortstop every night in the big leagues are really uniquely good defenders. Like, even a average uh, defensive grade at, at shortstop is a very, very good defender because the uh, average defender at that position at the highest level basically makes all the plays and makes it look easy. Um, I do think, though, like you said, you know, he's a little bit bigger, a little bit more muscular, uh, and has some raw power. So those are some of the ingredients you're looking for in a third baseman. I think you can stay on the left side of the infield. It's not a shortstop for me. Um, and for the bat, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think he's going to be able to turn it around more than he has at double A for sure. Uh, I think that you're looking at a guy that has a track record of struggling a little bit at a level, then acclimating to it and then performing well there. I do think we're looking at a big league guy, uh, whether he is an everyday player or not, probably depends on where he ends up playing defensively. And if it is at third base, uh, how much of that power is he able to tap into? Yeah, and that's the thing. It's Sometimes that power doesn't seem to translate into games, and that's kind of something that gets a little concerning. As I see, something, I saw you answer someone's tweet asking about Lazaro Alonso, and he's one of those guys that you, your answer kind of was, um, you might not think that power will translate into games at a higher level, even though he has that raw batting practice yeah. power. Another guy that that kind of reminds me of is the last guy I'm going to ask you about is, is Izon Diaz. He's got a lot of power, uh, came over in that Brewers trade, strikes out a lot as well. It seems to be the trend of these guys that the Marlins got from the Brewers. But he's also only 21 years old, fringe top 100 prospect, and shows a lot of tools. What do you think about his ability to hit higher-level pitching, even though he hasn't really gone above high A ball yet? And is he a guy that could be the Marlins' future at second base? Yeah, I I think I'm glad we're touching on Diaz. Um, I yes, I do think he could be the Marlins' future second base. This is gonna get pretty like nitty gritty scouty, but I think that a lot of times, you know, there there are a fair amount of players that have swing and miss issues at this age, and especially when you consider, unlike college baseball, not everyone's around the same age. I mean, you can have 19 and 20 year olds at the double A level playing against 27 year olds. That's not uncommon, and. So there are a lot of young kids that show tools and have upside. And the question is, is he going to be able to bring the power into games? It's a hit tool thing. There's a lot of guys like this. And I think uh, really a million-dollar question in scouting is understanding, okay, so which ones are going to get better and which ones never are going to hit enough despite the tantalizing tool set. Um, I think with Diaz, something that you're really looking for to answer the question that this guy can, this guy can make adjustments, or at least for me, I'll speak for myself. I'm looking at hand speed, hand looseness, and almost like barrel flexibility, if that makes sense. Like the ability to adjust the barrel to different parts of the zone. If I see guys that can do those things, even if they're swinging and missing, or even if there's something about their approach, like they're not really that polished and realizing they're going to see soft stuff with two strikes or they're not really used to being pitched to backwards where they see an off-speed pitch for strike one. If there's other reasons they're swinging and missing that don't have to do with their ability to get the bat to the ball and how their hands work, I think those are the types of guys that generally you can project to make more contact. Um, Diaz is one of those guys for me. I mean, I haven't seen him this year, so I haven't seen him since the trade, but I saw him plenty in the Carolina League uh, last season when he was with the Brewers. And there's some aggression with him, and I think that's why he is striking out, because I think his overall, you know, he kind of plays with his hair on fire, um, and you can see that he wants to go up there hunting the fastball. 
But because of some aspects of his mechanics and his swing, I think that if you simplify him at the plate a little bit and get him willing maybe to go deeper into counts, uh, yeah, I, I think there are tools there to make more contact. And I think this is a guy that you're going to see a little bit more offense from, even in the second half of the season. But even just as he catches up in age to the guys he's playing against in double A AA and triple A, I think this is a guy that has a chance to be an everyday, uh, everyday infielder, even that is at second base. And another guy that kind of fits that middle infield power profile that, uh, that the Marlins have liked in the past with Dan Ugla and Hanley Ramirez, even though they, Left a little to be desired defensively. That was one of the better Marlins teams in the last decade or so. Um, so it would be cool to see them maybe go in that direction again with a, a power, a powerful infield, especially because Brian Anderson at third isn't going to hit you 25 home runs every year, or at least just yet. So you got to make up for that power in some other spots. But of course, there's a lot to be figured out in terms of the Marlins starting lineup in the future. And the last question I'm going to ask you here, because I, a few, a few, we got a few tweets about this, and they wanted to know, Marlins fans wanted to know what your top three prospects would be for the Marlins at this moment. At this very moment, um, I guess you take Brinson off this list because he's burned through his rookie eligibility. Uh, I, I, I would probably go right now, number one for me is Monty Harrison. Number two is Sandy Alcantara. Number three is Jorge Guzman. Um, I think it would be more of a toss-up between Alcantara and Guzman if they were at the same level of the minors. But because Alcantara is a guy that's able to contribute in the big leagues right now, and there's a little bit more, a little bit more polish, even though there's still things for him to work on, uh, I'll go Alcantara over Guzman just because of safety and proximity. But some other guys that I wouldn't sleep on either. I would put Isan Diaz right up there, like we were talking about. Uh, I'm very intrigued to see Braxton Garrett come back from surgery because uh, he is a very intriguing prospect who actually, uh, though he's from the high school ranks, he had a lot more polish than a lot of other high school pitchers that they've taken. Like he's a very different profile than uh, Trevor Rogers. And I, I, I'd have Rogers up there too. So off, off the top of my head, one, two, three is Harrison Alcantara Guzman, but then don't sleep on Isan Diaz, uh, Trevor Rogers, and others. That's probably how I would go. And Braxton Garrett's one that I'm really excited to see as well because he has that pitch ability too where he can throw three pitches for a strike. He's got the velocity low mid-90s. So there's definitely a little bit to be excited about. But in a nutshell, I still think the Marlins have a lot more to be desired in terms of prospects, even though they're a long way from where they were before. Um, So it should be an interesting deadline, especially with seeing some of the assets the Marlins have. They didn't realize maybe they had – a few more bullpen arms than they thought Definitely. they would have going into the season. And uh, so if you're trading, you know, Kyle Baraclaw, what's the one team you want to send him to? That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, we're going to be, we're actually going to be talking about this on our podcast, uh, defensive indifference of 2080 baseball this Sunday. We're just going to talk about what a unique position the Marlins are in. I think that almost any other organization would not think of parting with uh, controllable pieces like this, but the Marlins are almost so far away. And again, I don't mean that in a bad way. I think this is the creation of this organization, finally building something sustainable. So I'm for it, but it's just a unique position they're in that they would be considering moving a guy like Barraclaw or moving a guy like Stecken, uh, Stecken Rider. Stecken Rider, right? Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Stecken yeah, I, I, I saw him play in college. He actually was an outfielder uh, more than he was a pitcher at University of Tennessee. But yeah, so... You know, I don't think a lot of other teams would think about moving those pieces just because of the amount of team control they have uh, and how affordable they are. But because generally adding to a bullpen is like the last thing that you do in roster construction when you're looking to compete, you could make the argument that no matter how controllable, there's like no bullpen arm that really is going to be a make or break guy for the Marlins. So why not bring back a lot of value by trading a player that's, you know, has value himself because he's affordable. So I don't know if I would exactly, I don't know if I'm going to name just one team because I think there are always teams that are looking for bullpen help. And I also think because these two guys are so young and easy to afford that the teams that might jump in the running might not necessarily be traditional contenders that have bullpen needs right now, if that makes sense. So I'm not going to name one team, but uh, you know, I definitely an interesting precedent to look into 
what the prospect return has been for such a uh, long-term controllable asset like what the Marlins might have coming up here? I think I think the best answer would be not the Red Sox, even though they've called and checked in. But there's not really much to be desired in that farm system. But the Indians, a few other teams have called in, and there's a little bit there. So as long as it's not the Boston Red Sox, I think the Marlins could get away with a nice little return. But we're going to wrap say, it up. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'll say this. I think that for as valuable as these guys are, you're not going to get back like a top. 150 or top 200 prospect i don't think for a reliever like i just unless it's like you know neither of these guys are that top of the market like you know the araldus chapman andrew miller prospect return like i wouldn't really look at that as the precedent for what's coming back for barrett law i think that the marlins have made interesting deals in the past where they have traded a reliever for a package of prospects uh, the David Phelps deal comes to mind. I want to say they got like three or four guys back for Phelps in the middle of last year, right? And one um, of them was Pablo Lopez, who's uh, you know, looked pretty good. Yeah, so I'm 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 just saying, like, I don't know if a household name prospect comes back for Barrett Law, but uh, don't sleep on the Marlins pro scouting department. Uh, there is plenty of depth in the minor leagues. I do think that uh, Barrett Law can return. You know, a nice package of prospects, but uh, I don't think that he returns necessarily like a true household name uh, prospect either. Yeah, and I was I was hoping that maybe that uh, historic month of June could help a little bit, and I'm sure it did. And I mean, this is the time to sell high, but hopefully the Marlins can at least get some depth in their farm system and something that they could definitely use. And it's a good time to sell high on some controllable pieces. I wish... I could keep you for hours and go through every single Marlins prospects because I know the fans too. They they even ask about some of these fringe guys like Lazaro, Alonzo. The Marlins fans just love yeah, to find out about every single little prospect. And I think a big part of that's also been the uh, some of the lower level guys overachieving, like a Pablo Lopez. So it's it's been something that's really been enjoyable, and I'm sure hopefully we can have you on later in the year because I know everyone loves to hear about these Marlins prospects, especially as they keep bringing guys in and hopefully we'll have a fun deadline and I'll have a lot more guys to ask you about. Yeah, no, I about to say I'll uh, come on in about a month and we can talk about the deadline because I'm sure that they are going to be moving some pieces and they're going to be prospects coming back. Um, so yeah, good stuff. I, I really appreciate being on and the Marlins are in such an interesting position right now. I've really enjoyed covering their system this year. Oh, and it's it's so nice to have someone with a wealth of knowledge like you on this farm system because there are so many guys, like I said, that aren't those top flight, high level guys, but definitely some guys that are worth talking about, like we've mentioned so far in the show. And thank you so much, Adam McIntyre, the assistant director for 2080 Baseball. Really good site. I mean, it's the place to go to get any information you want on players. They have write-ups on guys from Monty Harrison to Pablo Lopez to everywhere in between. So uh, definitely check that site out. And thank you so much, Adam, for your time. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter at 2080Adam. That's 2080ADAM. And uh, our Twitter account, 2080Baseball, is 2080Ball. So, uh, you know, be sure to check me out, check us out. And I really appreciate being on here. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you so much, Adam.